Well, good morning. Good to be with you today. As uh, May and I made our way up here from our home in Arlington Heights, we were just reminded once again of all the memories we have of this this uh, church plant. Uh, we passed Pyatt Road, and that's where the offices of Springbrook used to be before they had any kind of building or any kind of property at all. And uh, we were just reminded about Dan starting this church out of a phone booth. If you haven't heard that story, you ought to ask him about that. Somehow he found a way to use the same dime and call a whole bunch of people. And I still haven't figured out how he did that. But, you know, when you don't have any money, you find an an alternate way, and he did. And then when I come here and I see what God has done and what he's doing, I just marvel at uh, at that. Dan used to be my, uh, my youth director, and he has told me that if I tell any stories about that period in his life, he'll sue me. So I'm sworn to secrecy. And then he was a full-time director of Christian education and youth at my church, and then he went out to plant that church in Wisconsin, and then now here. So we have a long history together, a great friendship, and I just appreciate Dan, and I appreciate the man of God that he is, and how God has led in his life and, and uh, your, your life uh, of Springbrook as well. I've been following the, the devastating fires out west. I'm sure you can't turn on the TV without seeing and hearing about those terrible, devastating fires that are going on around the country, over a thousand homes destroyed already. And I've been watching some of the interviews with heartbreaking interest as people get before the cameras and they're often asked, well, what did you do? How much time did you have to get out of your home? Some people had minutes. Uh, Some people had just an hour or so to vacate their home. What What do you take? What would you take? out of your home if you had to vacate in five minutes or or an hour. Last time we moved from our home in Chicago to where we are now, it took three men and five hours just to empty our house, and that was without unloading it. You you can't take everything, so you have to figure out the people in our family. We've got to make sure they're safe. And then the pets seem to come next, cats and dogs. They're second to follow. And then the important papers, whatever legal papers you need for insurance and things like that, pictures fall in there someplace. The pictures that describe our family's memories in the past. And then possessions, you can't fit much in the car. You take what you can grab and and you go. And over a thousand homes have just been burned to the ground. One lady who didn't have any time at all was just weeping on the camera and said all All of my memories are gone. She didn't get anything. Another woman with kind of a family that has a significant sense of humor, she was, uh, the kids were already in town, and they called her when she was gathering these things in the home and and then fleeing. And they said, Mom, don't, don't forget to take Grandma and Grandpa. Otherwise, we won't be able to tell their ashes from the ashes of the couch when it burns up. Well, Grandma and Grandpa were in urns in the mantle in the living room, the ashes, and they wanted to make sure Grandma and Grandpa came along. Those people that realized there was really nothing they could do. A man coming home from uh, cutting a business meeting short and getting home to his family and talking to his wife, and she said, Adam and I are safe. I'm not sure about the house. His response was, If it's you and and I and Adam, we'll be just fine. Everything else doesn't matter. I suspect in light of that, Caleb was asking people to tweet and 
and call into their uh, station. And the question was, what does home mean to you? What thoughts conjure up in your mind when you think of home? And it was interesting to hear some of the different responses. One woman said, home to me is the sound of my husband's keys in the front door when he comes home from work. Someone else said, when I tuck the kids safely in bed at night, that's home, safety. Home for the holidays was another response. And of course, as we know, holidays can be a very positive or a very negative time because it causes us to self-reflect. It causes us to think about from whence we've come. And sometimes those are happy situations. And for many people, that's not a happy situation. I was talking to a woman yesterday who was doing some interviewing, and she said that the question that is often asked is, in your family of origin, was there ever any abuse or offense or that type of thing that took place in your home? And uh, she said about 98% of the responses were positive or affirmative to that question. So a lot of people, when they think of home, where they've come from geographically or home to the family of origin, that can be a very negative uh, thing. It can cause us to think about who I was back then and how that experience formed and shaped me to be who I am now today. Uh, or it can cause us to think I was from that and I'm a totally different person today. I'm not tied to that past at all. So home can have that kind of connotation as well. But home is not a place. It's primarily about relationships, and all of these stories kind of indicate that. People are important. Persons are important. Relationships are important. Memories are important. Home should be a place of love, and it should be a place of security. It should be a refuge. It should be uh, a safe place. And home should conjure up those kinds of things for us, and I trust that's the kind of homes we're making for our children and our grandchildren. In Psalm 90... Moses is talking about that kind of home. If you have your Bibles, I'm reading out of the NIV translation, and that will be the psalm that we'll look at today. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's a superscription. The Hebrews thought so much of that superscription that they made it part of the versification. So it actually is part of verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. It tells a lot of context. It tells history. In this case, it tells that Moses wrote this psalm the only one in the whole Psalter of 150 Psalms that is credited to him. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Another translation says you have been a refuge. It's the sense of home. It's the sense of the relational place we belong in God and he in us. You have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, Return to dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. We can all associate with that right now, right, as we look at our front lawns. That looks exactly like that. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. The length of our days is 70 years or 80, if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. 
Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You know, as you look at this psalm, there's only two really potential places that you can think about its context with Moses as the author. He's either, uh, you know, maybe in Jethro, his father-in-law's house, and, and the, uh, Israel is living under bondage in Egypt, or it's the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. So those are the two contexts that we would have for Moses writing this psalm. And it really is a cry of the heart for home. It has two natural divisions, uh, the first 11 verses and then verse 12 to 17. Now, I'm going to have to ask you to kind of bear with me on the first 11 verses, because this can be kind of a pessimistic psalm. You know, when I looked at the psalms, I've preached many, many of the psalms in the Psalter. We used to do psalms in the summer, just like you're doing. I'd come to Psalm 90, or I'd come to Psalm 90 when I was getting ready to do a funeral, uh, either at the funeral home or the graveside, and I'd look at Psalm 90. You know, I've never used it. And now when I was preparing this psalm that I've never preached on before, I realize why. You know, because really, somebody's called it a dark psalm. But it's the word of God, eh? So we ought to, we ought to see what it has to say to us. But the pessimistic side is, is the early part. And the hope, the home, you know, that comes in the, in the later parts. So let's take a look at it. The way things are with God is how I think it begins. And uh, I think it, it, it describes a God in verse 1 as the one who wants an ultimate relationship, uh, the ultimate relationship, the ultimate refuge, the ultimate home. Lord, you have been our dwelling place. You have been our home throughout all generations. Now, typically Christians think about this home idea only in the case of death. And, and that's a true way to think about it. John 14, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's home are many, many rooms. And if it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. So that's an appropriate way for us to think about this concept of home uh, as a place that we're going. But I don't believe that's what Moses is talking about here because he's talking about from generation to generation and he's talking about what God is to us in the sense of a relational experience, the kind of home that we've talked about. Moses is talking, I believe, about this daily relationship, this, this living lifestyle where God is in us and we are in God. It's a man of God in prayer with his father, uh, Moses, who's credited with writing the first five books uh, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Uh, he's the one that would have penned the words where God was walking in the cool of the day and called out to Adam and Eve, where are you? God seeking man in that relationship that he created him for. But of course, sin had entered and that messed up the, the relationship. I think God still yearns for that kind of relational conversation with his people. 
a friend of mine was asking a volunteer, kind of surprised him, and said, would you pray before we begin what was going to go on? And the man was really totally unprepared, and maybe he was afraid of praying in public, and, you know, the leader was kind of his bad there. He should have checked with him first. But, But I often thought about, you know, why can't we do that? Why can't we just have a conversation with the Father? I think sometimes it's because we don't have enough conversations with the Father in our private life. We just have a regular conversation with God. God who knows what's going on in our life. He knows everything that there is to know. We just have this conversation with him. That's what Moses is doing, Psalm 90. It's this man of God just having a conversation with his father. We ought to make time for that. I do it on a regular basis on the way to work and back. That's the time that it's quiet and I can just talk to God about whatever is going on, whatever he knows about. I think that time set aside, devotional time, is important. It's uh, scripture memorization. Your verse for this week is, Lord, your word I've hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. All of those things uh, build this relationship, this home feeling with the Father that he's seeking. So he's our ultimate relationship, our ultimate refuge, our ultimate home. And I don't think we ought to wait for the tragedies of life to come to engage him on a regular basis. I think the crises of life are better handled when we have that relationship built in on a regular basis. Secondly, the first couple of verses talk about the God who is eternal and unchanging. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We have, I think, a mindset in the church today that kind of separates. In fact, if you look at some pastor's Bibles, you'll see that the New Testament is often much more worn than the Old Testament. Very interesting. That's because that's where they're spending their time. And I'm not saying we shouldn't spend our time in the New Testament. But the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. God is eternal. He says, I am the Lord. I do not change. So we can't say there's that God and then there's this God. Now, he may deal with us differently. He may interact and and do things differently. Certainly, he's... He's bound by the cross, and, and, and that is uh, the forward part of, of his plan. But the cross is told about in just about every book of the Old Testament. We can see it. In every place we turn, shadowed and pointing ahead to that which is to come, the feasts, all of that points to the coming of Christ, this, the Passover lamb. Jesus is on the pages of the Old Testament. It's the same God. And so we need to not differentiate. And, and, you know, when we think about that, I think it takes us to the next point of God's description here. And this is the hard part. You won't hear this on Joel Osteen's channel, let me tell you. Uh, you won't hear this from Robert Schuller's pulpit. Oh, Robert Schuller's pulpit is no more. There was a division in the family, and his son was going to take over the pulpit after his father retired. But his son was more evangelical than his father was, and they didn't like the message. So then they put the daughter in. Well, that didn't work. Now I hear the Roman Catholic Church has bought the Crystal Cathedral. So they're not going to hear this at all anymore. It's not just the positive thing. This is who God says, I am, the unchanging God. And I think the third thing we see here is that he's a righteous judge. Verse 3, he talks about, you turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. Going back to Genesis 3.15, God cursed the soil. He cursed the earth. And he said to man, 
With toil and sweat of your brow shall you raise anything from this ground from now on. And then he says, you will return to the dust from whence you've come. Moses could be certainly making a reference here to that. Verse 5, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. Could be a reference to the sweeping away in the flood of Pharaoh's army. But both of those situations, judgments of God. So God is a righteous judge. And when you look at this righteous judge, look how he's described in verse 7. We are consumed by your anger. We're terrified by your indignation. And then verse 11, who knows the power of your anger? For your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. God is a righteous judge, and he's got anger, not anger issues. He's got righteous anger, and that belongs to the Lord all throughout Scripture. Be angry and don't sin. Retribution, judgment belongs to God. But that is his posture, that's his position, and he's a God who does not change. And so Moses, the man of God who used to talk face-to-face with God, who used to have, have to hang a veil over his face when he came down from the mountain for the glory of the Lord, after being in his presence, was shown to all the people. This Moses, who we know, this, this side of Psalm 90, he didn't know when he wrote it, but this side of Psalm 90, we know that Moses was the recipient of God's judgment. He was the recipient of God's wrath. He was the recipient of God's anger because of sin that he, that he did. You remember it? The children of Israel, they were thirsty. And they were whining as they were wont to do. We don't have any water. We're thirsty. And so God said to Moses, take that staff and strike that rock. And water will come flowing forth. And the people will know that I, the Lord, and the water of life, I provide for the people that I have taken out of Egypt. Moses was ticked because this was the second time the people had complained about water. So he took that staff and he struck the rock twice. Now, some people think because he struck it twice and God said, you only strike it once. But I don't think that's what happened there. Moses said, why do we, Aaron and I, have to do this for you, children of Israel? And so the words of his mouth were an affront to the holiness of God. And God immediately said, because you have trampled on my holiness, you and Aaron will not enter the promised land. Now, Moses, think about what he's done. For 40 years, he put up with those babbling people of Israel, always, always complaining, always with a problem. One time he stood between God and the children of Israel when Israel had sinned. And God said, step aside, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'll make from you a new nation and and do do the purposes that I had. And And Moses pleaded with God, don't do that, God. Don't do that. And think of all the things that Moses did. And he finally got them to the place where they were ready to cross the Jordan. And then evidently, he was really sorry for what he had done. And sometimes we're sorry for the things that we've done. And we ought to be. Uh, And and, uh, so he said uh, he, he was concerned, you know, and he was pleading with God. It says, at that time, I pleaded with the Lord. He's begging God. Oh, sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do the deeds and mighty works you do. Let me go over and see the good land. Simple request. After 40 years, 40 years of all this stuff, Lord, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that fine hill country in Lebanon. Verse 26, but because of you, Moses talking to the children of Israel, the Lord was angry with me. And would not listen to me. That is enough, the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore 
about this matter? God said no. And he took Moses up on Mount Pisgah and he opened his eyes so he could see across the Jordan and all the lands that Israel was going to have, but his foot never touched. Then Moses died and God buried him. So you see, when even a very man of God who writes a psalm like this, even a man of God like that, that angers God or causes God's wrath and judgment to fall upon him, it's a very real thing. And it's very real today. This is the God who says, I do not change. I am immutable. I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Lord's holiness, the Lord's righteousness, the Lord's eternality. Well, how is it with man? Let's look at the way things are with man. Verses 4 to 6, man is described as having a short lifespan. He says here that you, uh, a thousand years in God's sight are like a day that has just gone by. And again, Moses' reference to these Old Testament writings that uh, God inspired uh, through the Holy Spirit for him to write Methuselah, 969 years. Okay, is that the best you can do, man? God, for a thousand years of God is like a day that just went by. 969 years, that's nothing. And then he goes on to say, but now it's only about 70 or 80 years that man has. It's even a shorter lifespan. So compared to Methuselah, it's not very long. Compared to the eternal God, it's not very long. If you watch, I think it's Channel 2 in the the mornings. Maybe once a week they have the Smucker's birthdays, you know, and all these people that attained 100 years old. And some of these people are still bowling and still driving and doing all kinds of things. So maybe you reach 100 years. That's pretty remarkable. But it's still insignificant compared to the eternal God. And then the second truth about man is found in verse 10. We're born to trouble. The length of our years, 70, 80 years if we have the strength. But their span is but trouble and sorrow, and they quickly pass, and we fly away. Is that true or not? Any trouble in your world today? I'm sure we can all make a big, big list of the troubles that we're facing. Physical troubles, emotional troubles, financial troubles, troubles with kids. We, we all have our challenges, work-related. The scripture says, as the sparks fly upward, so man is born to trouble. Next time you're toasting marshmallow, marshmallows over an open fire, which, just see which way the sparks go. And be reminded of the fact that scripture says we're born to trouble. We will have difficulties. We will have conflicts. We will have suffering. That is our state. So the contrast between God and man is quite significant. And God says why we're having trouble as well. You notice here he doesn't pull any punches in verse 8. Our iniquities are before God and our secret sins in the light of his presence. It's amazing what you can do on Google, right? If you just start to type, Google will finish it for you. You know, it'll, it'll know what you're asking before you're finished asking. It's an amazing tool. Well, God's got something like that. And it just goes back over the span of our life. And everything's there. Bernie, Tannock. Before Tannis gets put in, he knows everything I've done, everything I've said, every sin I've committed. Not only the ones that you also know about, but the secret sins, the one that nobody else knows about. God knows it all. So there's the contrast between the holy, righteous judge, the eternal God, the one who doesn't change, and then us. We're in a lot of trouble. Now, if we stop here, please, let's not stop here. Let's move on to the second part. And that's the way things ought to be from verses 11 to 17. Verse 12a talks about us needing a proper perspective on God. Teach us to number our days aright. How do we solve this dilemma? How do we fix it? 
Teach us to number our days aright. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 11 says, who knows the power of your anger? We just talk about the love of God, and we don't know what we're saved from or saved to. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from the judgment of God. We're saved from the punishment of God. Teach us to know the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. That reverential fear, not cowering in fear, but the reverential fear, the fear that Moses forgot when he struck that right, that rock and, and then said, Mo, Aaron and I have to do this, as opposed to God has to do this. That reverential fear that's due him. Teach us to number our days aright. So Proverbs is very, very uh, apropos for us to think about that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Putting his word in our heart, that time with him, speaking to him, listening to him, studying the word of God, all of those things are growing our relationship with him. And once we know who God is, we're just like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 5. Woe is me. I saw the Lord. and He was high and lifted up and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And then he said, oh, woe, woe, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst the people of unclean lips. When we see God aright, and this is how God is describing himself. He's not changed. He's the same God today. When we see God in who he is, in all of his righteousness, eternality, and holiness, then we understand who we are. And when we understand who we are in the light of God, we cower in his presence. We cower in his presence because of the difference between us. We need a proper perspective on who God is. Today we talk about, well, we, we're getting baptized. And that's fine. I think the baptism is a good thing. I, I know one of our churches in the area just baptized 37 people, one of our converged churches. And it was a fantastic experience. I heard of another church baptized 500 people on one Sunday recently. And, and if that leads, as it should, to a salvific experience first, then we've got it right. But if we're just being baptized without the salvific experience, coming to Christ and having him cleanse us, then it's just getting wet. So we should get baptized. I'm all for baptism. But first, we need to have this encounter with God and see who he is and know what we're being saved from. Not just getting out of a lifestyle, but having our heart changed, having our attitude changed, our mind changed, being forgiven of our sins. That's what it's all about. So we need a proper perspective on God. We need a proper perspective on time. You notice that he talks about days and he talks about not months. He doesn't talk about years. Yesterday's gone and tomorrow, who knows, it may never come. It's not guaranteed. Someone has taken an analysis of a 70-year-old life. And if we look at that, uh, you know, we'll sleep for 23 years. We'll work for 16 years. We'll watch TV for eight years. We'll eat for six years. We'll travel for six years, unless you're in Chicago, and then that's probably a little longer. With leisure time of four and a half years, Illness of four years, and we spend two years getting dressed. I don't want to make any cracks about the women getting dressed, but that might be a little bit longer there, too. You know, the time goes by so quickly. It's like here, and then it's gone. Our kids were in our arms, and now we're taking care of their kids. 
where have the years gone? They've just gone. They've just flown by. And that's exactly what happens. I have a friend, pastor friend, who was just one of the premier youth pastors in this district. Followed his ministry closely. Son of a pastor. A brother who's a pastor. Went out to California. Had a very successful youth ministry in California. And was being called to come back to Illinois to take up a pulpit as senior pastor. And that day that he was to make that that trip back to Illinois, he had something go haywire in his body with his liver. And uh, it was a very weird, very strange thing. And they, they weren't able to catch it. And for several weeks, he was in and out of the hospital, went back to the hospital, was left unattended and somehow fell off the gurney. And they had to take a big part of his brain out. And now he's in a wheelchair. And uh, his wife was pregnant for their second child. And uh, it's just a very sad situation. He cannot speak, can hardly swallow. He's in his mid-30s. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. I heard about a 17-year-old boy and prayer was being requested because the doctor gave him hours to live. He was going to die of pancreatic cancer. The bridge in Glenview just this week collapsed when a train went over it. They were very happy because nobody was there until they started to dig the coal dust out and realize a car was buried there and two people. I heard on the news last night that they have put an injunction now. They want to get the right pictures for the court battle that's coming up. Who knows if anybody else is buried under there? They don't even know. It reminded me of when my daughter was in Minnesota taking a group of boys or her own sons to a twins game. And I heard on the radio that a bridge had collapsed on the way to the stadium. And uh, she had been on that bridge just seven minutes before it collapsed. And, you know, people died in that thing. We live in a dangerous world. And really, we, we just understand that, boy, life is so precious and it can be snatched away just like the Scripture talks about the grass that comes up in the morning and is gone at night. We don't know what time we have. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow really may never come. We have today. Make the most of our days. Teach us to apply a heart of wisdom to the days you've given to us. Relationships are important. The home we build are important. The relationship with a refuge in God. So we need a proper perspective on time. And then we need a proper perspective on God's love and mercy. And again, we need to be reminded that, that this God is the same God. It's not like the God of the Old Testament didn't have love. It's not like the God of the Old Testament didn't have compassion. Look at verses 13 to 15. He talks about have compassion on your servants. Have unfailing love. And these terms are both love and mercy, compassion and mercy. They're interchangeable in the different translations. Moses understands that God's got that heart again. I mean, Moses penned these words. How much did he understand? It's interesting. We, we don't know. You know, he was used of God to inscribe these books. Did he understand as much as he was writing? But in the garden, when sin first entered the world, this verse, Genesis 3.15, God is saying, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring, the offspring of Satan, and her offspring, the offspring of woman. He will crush your head, the offspring of woman, and you will strike his heel. Now, if you get a bruise and a heel, that can be pretty easily repaired. But if you crush somebody's head, you're done. That's exactly what is the intent of the verse. And this is what's called the first good news. It's God saying, as soon as sin entered the world, it's God saying, I've made a way. I've made a pathway. 
Jesus is coming, and you'll put him on a cross, and you'll bruise his heel. But he, in that act, will crush Satan in death. So God always had this plan, and he always had love and mercy. He always had a plan to take care of the sin problem that you and I have. And that was going to be resolved because he is a compassionate God and because he is a merciful God. So it's the same God in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. In John chapter 14, verse 20, it speaks of this very succinctly. Jesus said, On that day, then you'll realize, I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And there's a beautiful picture of home. Home spiritually, where God resides and where we reside. And he resides in us, and we reside in him. And that's what Moses is talking about. You have been that refuge to us, God. That's, that's the balance that we need of God's wrath and anger and indignation. With the judgment comes the solution for man's sin. So we need a proper perspective on God's love and mercy. And finally, verse 16, we need a proper perspective on the legacy that we leave. Verse 16 says, May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. Show us your hand again, the strong right arm of the Almighty God. Show us your deeds, Lord. Let us see again those things that we may tell your splendor and show your splendor to our children. It's important that we have a proper perspective on the legacy that we leave. How many times in the Old Testament is Israel marching through the wilderness and God performs some kind of a miracle? He says, take a, take a pile of stones and then stack them up. When they went through the Red Sea, he made sure that one of the tribes each picked up a stone, a boulder, and made a big pile of stones. And then he instructed the Israelites, now when your children pass by this pile of stones, make sure you tell them what happened here, what I did when I raised my right arm on your behalf. Let's leave a legacy with our children. Let's make sure we pass on the stories of a great God, our faith, to those who come behind us because we're only here for 70 or 80 years and God's work goes from generation to generation. Recently, there's been a number of circumstances in my own life and I've had to kind of rethink old stories, rethink uh, someone wanted to know my salvation story, when were, when were you saved? And so I just, you know, reached back and don't don't tell the story every day, but I reached back to being a young kid in government-subsidized row housing along the Passaic River in New Jersey, looking for a show and finding Billy Graham. And having never heard the gospel, one of eight children, never heard the gospel, parents that weren't saved, I heard the gospel for the first time, that through Christ we can have forgiveness of our sins and a new life. And I accepted Christ right there in my living room. And then... You know, my, my parents came to faith in really kind of a roundabout way through Billy Graham. My father had a delicatessen, and he was connected with the mob in New York. He used to take book on the horses, and that's, it was illegal then. It's illegal now, I think. And uh, my sister said in a family gathering with some strangers that she was about eight or nine, and, and she said, my, my daddy makes sandwiches, and he puts money inside of them, and then he sends them out the door. Well, that's how he got the money to the drop-off point. He used to make sandwiches of cash, wrap it up in tinfoil, and then get it. Well, my father was so scared when he realized the kids were talking about this stuff he got out of the mob. But he knew Mickey Cohen, who was the mob boss in New York. Mickey Cohen was under investigation by the feds, and he went out to... California thought he could, you know, get beyond the long arm of the law, and uh, 
it was there that he had uh, an electronics expert by the name of Jim Voss. And I don't know what Jim Voss did for Mickey Cohn and the mob, but he was involved in some way. Well, Billy Graham started his tent meetings out in Los Angeles, and Jim Voss went to one of those meetings and got saved. Went to Mickey Cohen and said, Mickey, I've accepted Christ. I can't participate in these illegal activities anymore. Mickey kind of put him off, but two henchmen showed up at his door, and they said, you'll have to come with us, because the only way you leave the mob with the knowledge he had was on a slab. So he went on the front porch, and for 45 minutes, he said he shared his testimony of what happened to him in that tent meeting and what God said. The henchmen left, and they were never seen again. And Jim Walsh went on to use his electronics uh, experience to share the gospel. And my aunt invited my father and mother, who were unsaved, to go to Hawthorne Gospel Church to hear this fellow by the name of Jim Walsh. My father said, it can't be the same Jim Walsh. He, he's a mobster. And they said, oh, it's the same Jim Voss. The mobster is going to be in the church. And my mother and father went, and Jim Voss just shared his testimony, and they both accepted Christ. And I was just rehashing these stories. You know, we need to pass these stories on. I just told my grandson recently, he said, I don't know anything about the mob connections we have, Papa. Well, he was very interested in that, but that was my hook, you know, to get into my grandson. And I told him the story. You know, we need to have a legacy where we pat. What's God done for you? He saved you. Well, that's a good story to tell. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to your kids? How's God provided for you? When I think about leaving a vice presidency and being called by God to go to Bible school and then seminary with four kids, I think about that. And uh, being house poor and having a big room, a big house that wouldn't sell because of the oil crash. How did we do that for four years without any income? And I could tell you the stories that would make the hair on your head just curl. Because God was the great provider. God said, follow me and I will provide for you. And all of those stories, that's the legacy that we leave behind. That's what we need to pass on. The legacy of the splendor of God to our children. Someone has said, our hearts are not at rest until they find their rest in God. Our hearts are not at rest until they find their home, their rest, in God alone. Live for him every day. Live, let him live in you and then through you, and the splendor will show to the legacy we leave. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we've looked at this psalm, it may be that some of us have those sins or secret sins that just came to mind. We think they're known only to us, but we now know they're known very well to you. And so in these moments, as we just reflect, Lord, hear our hearts as we pray about our sins. And then, Lord, we realize that you are a God who's keeping track, and yet your predominant emotion for us is love and mercy, and you'd like to extend that to us in Christ. It may be in this audience today there's somebody who's never received the gift of salvation in Christ. And so I would pray for that person or those persons and ask that you would listen to their prayer of confession of their sins and just asking you to come and make your abode in their hearts and their souls. And then, Lord, this psalm ends by saying, Establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And Lord, as I've traveled around the world and come back to the U.S., I realize how blessed we are in this country. 
how blessed we are as a people. Even the poorest in this country live better than most of the people in the third world. And so as you have established the work of our hands, as you have blessed us, as you have poured out your provision on us, so Lord, I pray that we would, as we return these tithes and offerings to you, realize they're for the furtherance of the kingdom and the continuing legacy of the church. We ask that you'd bless both gift and giver in Jesus' name. Amen.